You are listening to a Crosspoint Peachtree City podcast. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. see you guys this morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this building. Uh, if we haven't met yet, my name's Jamie, one of the pastor elders of our church, privileged to preach God's word most Sundays. That's surely the case this morning, which is why I'm standing here at this moment in the service. Uh, this morning, we dive into week two of a sermon series that we began last week. For those of you who may not have been here, a series that's going to carry us all the way up to Palm Sunday, which is the Sunday before Easter Sunday, an eight-week series and journey through the book of Ruth. It's one of the most endearing stories in all of the Bible, really. A story of redemption born out of the ashes of ruin. We even sang with some of that language and imagery uh, in the moments leading up to our time in the scriptures this morning. A story, uh, the book of Ruth, covered in the fingerprints of the providential hand of God. A God who, who's always working in bringing his redemptive purposes to fulfillment, whether we can see it or not, oftentimes in the most unexpected of ways, uh, through the most ordinary of events and most ordinary and oftentimes imperfect of, of people. A story within the greater story of God's redeeming love for us in Jesus Christ. With that said, because we've got a lot of ground to cover this morning, I'm just going to go ahead and invite you to open up to Ruth chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 6 through 18 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the chairs in the row in front of you. Feel free to use that during our time together. Feel free to take that copy of the Bible if you don't own a Bible and enjoy it this week, spending time in it. Let me pray for us before we jump into the scriptures together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the story of Ruth the story of redemption that this story within the greater story of redemption tells. Um, Lord, there are ways as we see these characters developing over the course of this story that we're meant to lean in and ask hard questions of ourselves. I pray that you would help us to do that. Uh, but ultimately, that we wouldn't twist this into some moralistic effort to, to be like Ruth or Boaz or any of these characters really, in some sort of effort to merit your favor or your love or right standing with you, that we would acknowledge when all said and done that our only hope of redemption truly is in Jesus Christ and that it's only by the grace that we receive, the mercy that we receive from you in union with Christ by faith that we have any hope of living in a way that is honorable to you for your glory, for our good and for our deepest joy. Lord, I pray this morning that as a result of our time in the scriptures, that you would save those having come into this space outside of the faith. And I pray that for every one of us that remain outside of that prayer, that, that you would call us home in our wanderings this morning, big or small, whatever that may look like, Lord, that, that you would bring us in yet again into your arms and Lord, that we would walk out of here grateful for our time in the scriptures, grateful for who you are, that you are a God who redeems out of the ashes of ruin. 
Help us to see that in our own lives this morning uh, as a result of our time uh, with this incredible book of the Bible. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So going back to last week, we, we saw, if you weren't here, this is kind of a catch you up to speed. If you were, this is sort of a recap. Uh, we saw that the, the story of Ruth is set against the backdrop of one of the darkest moments, really, in all of redemptive history. In the days when the judges ruled, that's how the story of Ruth begins. The time between the entrance of God's people in the promised land in the wake of the Exodus, Moses having led God's people out of Egyptian enslavement between that moment, that time in redemptive history and the establishment of the Israelite monarchy under the reigns of Saul, David, and Solomon. That's where we're situated in terms of of the timeline of redemptive history, a time when there was yet no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So that the Israelites were fairly indistinguishable from the nations that surrounded them. Caught up in this recurring cycle of sin, judgment, and and deliverance. The details, you can read all about that in the book of Judges. This downward spiraling of sorts of God's people into the darkness of covenant-breaking rebelliousness. The story of Ruth beginning with a famine in the land, which most scholars understand to be more than a, a detailing of background information. A famine in the days when the judges ruled, a theological statement, a covenantal statement, a reminder for any one of this story's earliest hearers or readers of the covenant blessings and curses laid out in the days of Moses for the people of Israel. As God was clear in his covenant stipulations with his people that in faithful obedience to the Lord, There would be the blessing of a fruitful field on the one hand, in covenant rebelliousness, the curse of a desolate field on the other. So that the Lord cursed the ground in the days of the judges, just as he had cursed the ground in the wake of the sin of our first parents in the garden. So that the barren fields of Canaan were, in the words of C.S. Lewis, at the time that the story of Ruth is happening, God's megaphone, that desolate field, God calling his people in the days of the judges to return to him in repentance and trust. It's in these days of of covenant rebellion and widespread famine that we're told that a man named Elimelech took his wife and his two sons to Moab, leaving the land of God's promise and God's presence for a land notorious for its pagan compromise. So that many scholars believe that Elimelech did what was right in his own eyes, just like so many others in, in the days of the judges in his own day. That the problem wasn't ultimately the absence of bread, the absence of food, but rather the absence of a right orientation to the Lord. Then instead of running from the, the land of promise, Elimelech should have run to the Lord for mercy. His name meaning my God is king, his actions declaring my decision is best. Still other scholars a bit more charitable toward Elimelech, recognizing that the author of Ruth rarely gives us a clear window into the ethical decisions and driving motivations of the characters of this story so that perhaps Elimelech thought that he could relocate his family to Moab just long enough to escape the famine while avoiding the dangers of religious syncretism, getting caught up in the land of foreign gods. And that may help to explain why the author describes the journey as a sojourn, Going back to the beginning verses, a temporary stay. And yet, as we talked about last week, the decision proved tragic as Elimelech and his family came to settle in the land of Moab over time so that it became a place of deeper roots, as is oftentimes the case with our own wanderings from the Lord. 
So that what starts out as a sojourn from God becomes this new way of life over time. Oftentimes we don't even see the trajectory for what it is. Right? In the case of Elimelech and his family, we learn very quickly that not only is this a time of devastation for Israel as a whole, but personally for this family having established itself in a far country. The story's beginnings, a lot like the story of Job. A lot of tragedy right out of the gate as Naomi, the wife of Elimelech, is left widowed, her sons without a dad. Kind of tragic loss that, that we might expect would have led Naomi and her sons to return to Bethlehem, to go back. Except that again, what had started out as a sojourn became this new way of life, so much so that Naomi's sons fell in love with and married Moabite women and spent the better part of a decade establishing deeper roots in this land of foreign gods. And with time, more grief and more loss. Not only were Ruth and Orpah unable to conceive for the better part of 10 years, but they too saw the passing of their husbands around the time of their 10-year anniversaries. Three funerals in the first five verses of the book of Ruth, a widowed woman and her two widowed daughters-in-law, which in the wake of those tragic events, the story continues, we're told, verse six, then she, Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. This is the first mention of God in the book of Ruth. And with that mention, a reversal of fortune. As the famine in Israel is finally brought to an end. After all those years, the gracious action of God in history to preserve his people. That's the story of the whole Bible, by the way. Not just in the days of Ruth But throughout the generations preceding Ruth and onward marching, Ruth's own great-grandson, who would become king, David, would go on to write in the penning of the lyrics of one of his many songs of praise, these words, Psalm 145, verses 15 and 16. And his great-grandmother, Ruth, would have given a yes and amen to these words. David says, The eyes of all look to you, and you give them food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. If you don't, it's no longer living. You hold our lives in your hands, Lord. You can just picture Naomi in the the midst of her grief, coming out of those first five verses, having tasted numerous times over the bitterness of her own tears. Out in the fields of Moab one day, no idea it's coming. Receiving the news that Bethlehem, the house of bread, is no longer hungry. For the Lord has visited his people and given them food, verse 6. It's hard to know what to make of the characters at times in this story. Maybe Naomi's heart was happy in one sense. To know that the many years of famine were over. That in her helplessness and vulnerable state, she could go back. Find provision, having lost all of her providers. And yet maybe, too, there was a sense of uncertainty. I mean, after all, God had visited his people, verse 6 tells us, and Naomi nor the rest of her family was there. So that maybe questions of doubt arose in her mind. Am I one of his people? Was our leaving a mistake all along? Distance from the blessing of there, living in the pain and loss of here. Like the prodigal, 
living in the loneliness and, and emptiness of a far country, reminded of the Father's presence and blessing back home. And so she does the only thing she knows to do. She packs her things and she leaves the far country of Moab behind. It's this crossroads moment in, in the book of Ruth that's surely about returning to Bethlehem. Yes and amen to that. But more than that, as we'll see, it's about returning to the Lord in faith and trust. If you continue on, verses 7 through 13, we're told, So she, Naomi, set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. Verse 10, and they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. For I'm too old to have a husband, and if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they're grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. That's a lot to read at once, particularly in a narrative, right? And yet, it seems to me to be better for us to, to do that, that, that we might take in all of what Naomi has to say as we consider what to make of these words. Right? The apparent plan starting out having been for Ruth and Orpah to go with their mother-in-law. The three of them surely having developed the deepest of relationships with each other in light of all that they experienced those 10 years for better or for worse. And yet somewhere along the journey, something shifts for Naomi so that she turns to her daughters-in-law and seeks to, to send them on their way back to their native land of Moab. Naomi's words in the eyes of many scholars bringing more confusion than, than clarity. As she blesses Ruth and Orpah in the name of Yahweh, pronouncing a benediction over them, verses 8 and 9, while at the same time encouraging them to return to the land of foreign gods. Look ahead to verse 15. So that there's, there's no doubt, in a sense, that Naomi wishes for the Lord to deal kindly with these two women, just as they had dealt kindly with, with her and the husbands and, and sons that she had lost. Verse 8. And yet she can't envision such kindness for them to be found in Judah, in Bethlehem. After all, who, who would they marry there? Better yet, maybe more importantly, who would marry them? A couple of Moabite women. Right? Not even Naomi herself could provide an answer, a solution, as she was too old to remarry and conceive sons of her own to someday give to Ruth and Orpah in marriage. And even if she could, how nonsensical would it be for these two women to sit around and wait until a couple of infant boys could grow up into manhood and take them as wives? Not to mention that Naomi herself is struggling at this point, not with the sovereignty of God, but with the goodness of God. Seeing herself, verse 13, as cursed, so that to go their separate ways would be far better than to stay together. 
right? In one sense, Naomi does in fact acknowledge God's presence, and that's a good thing. Better that than, than not to acknowledge God at all, recognizing his sovereign hand, though bitter in the moment. And yet, as we'll see in verse 15, she believes that Ruth and Orpah can expect more from the gods of Moab than the God of Israel. In fact, encouraging them to to seek what she and Elimelech never found in Moab, mind you, rest in peace outside the land of God's promise and, and presence. Some scholars believing that the struggle for Naomi runs even deeper though requiring us to to read a bit between the lines here, meaning that perhaps she was so overwhelmed with bitterness, guilt, and and shame that she couldn't bear the thought of continuing the journey with Ruth and Orpah by her side. I mean, after all, Ruth and Orpah in the, the land of Judah would be a daily reminder, a steady reminder of Naomi's having left the land of promise all those years ago for the land of foreign gods. Some of you know this. I, I, my mom conceived me when she was 17 and had me halfway through her senior year. And there were options on the table. In many ways, it, it would have been far easier to have had an abortion or to have given me up for adoption in such a situation. So that to, to have kept me and raised me, which she did was on the one hand a redemptive blessing to see God bring redemption out of the ashes of a difficult situation, and yet at the same time a daily reminder of the choices of the past, having led to the the realities of the present. Right? Oftentimes it's, it's easier to distance ourselves, if we're honest, from the reminders of our wanderings from the Lord. Whatever the reason, we're told that Naomi twice encourages her daughters-in-law to return to Moab so that verse 14, the story continues, then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Verse 18, and when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. In this moment, Ruth and Orpah are faced with a critical decision, a turning point in their lives. It's Yahweh plus a great deal of uncertainty in Bethlehem that awaits, or the safety and security of all that they had ever known in the land of foreign gods. From a practical standpoint, we talked about this last week in Uh, Naomi and Elimelech's decision to leave for Moab in the first place, that practically speaking, it's not surprising that Orpah turns back, right? I mean, after all, and and consider this, Naomi's family having journeyed to the land of Moab all those years ago was a testimony in and of itself that there was more prospect of provision and blessing in the land of Moab than in Israel. They had been evangelized to Moab for years in that sense. And so Orpah goes back to the land of Moab and in doing so to the people of Moab and the gods of Moab. I'm reminded of the the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18 who was sorrowful and wanting eternal life 
yet unable to bring himself to, to lay down his nets, so to speak, clinging to his security and losing the kingdom. Though Orpah wept, we're told, she still turned back. The tug of her heart, it was ultimately toward Moab, never to be heard from or heard of again. Ruth, on the other hand, verse 14, clung to Naomi. That that word translated clung, coming from the same Hebrew word that's not only used in Genesis chapter 2 to describe the covenant bond of marital commitment, but to the, the Hebrew word used by Moses in describing how Israel was to hold fast to or cling to the Lord. It helps to explain the, the vow-like language uh, with which Ruth responds to Naomi. Language that uh, to this day is incorporated into marriage vows and wedding ceremonies. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge, Ruth says. For better or for worse, Naomi... For richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, regardless of circumstance, I'm not going anywhere so that your home will be my home. But but lest we think that Ruth's decision is simply a commitment and devotion to Naomi, she goes on to up the stakes in declaring some of the most shocking words in all of the Old Testament. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Right? Ruth has no idea at this point in the story whether she'll be welcomed, let alone accepted, by the people of Israel at journey's end. In the ancient world, it was not common practice to change one's religion or citizenship. As religion and nationality defined a person's ethnic identity. Perhaps no better time to take that kind of leap than in the days of the judges, you could argue, when the Israelites were fairly indistinguishable from the surrounding nations, and yet a huge risk on Ruth's part nonetheless. As here Ruth declares that she's joining herself not only to Naomi, but to the people of Israel and the covenant God of that people. A God whom Ruth refers to not simply as Elohim, creator God, but as Yahweh, verse 17, which is God's name in relation to his covenant people. More than creator God, Understanding this God to be the covenant God of Israel. Who knows how Ruth came to that place of understanding. Maybe she had heard about it through Naomi and her family all those years. Maybe like Rahab, she simply had heard reports of what God had done in redeeming Israel. However it came to be, Ruth had heard about the people of Israel and her God, and she was convinced that there was nowhere else to go but Bethlehem and Judah. Regardless of what it might cost her in parting ways with everything that she had ever known. Like Simon Peter, when the twelve were asked by Jesus if they would turn back, as the many others uh, having abandoned Jesus in the wake of a very hard teaching, to which Peter responded, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Similarly, that there was nowhere else for Ruth to go. Her words echoing the very words of God's covenant promise to Israel. God having declared back in Exodus chapter 6, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. Ruth here declaring, your people shall be my people and your God my God. A declaration 
on Ruth's part that the God of Abraham and Moses would be her God, her Lord. In part, and this is amazing, fulfilling the promise that God had made with Abraham. In that through Abraham's descendants, God was drawing this Gentile woman to faith. He was blessing the nations. A Gentile woman whose love for and devotion to the Lord would surely in the months and years ahead awaken a few Israelites from their spiritual stupor. I mean, after all, not only does this story take place in the days of the judges, when everyone did what was right in his own eyes, but in contrast, this is a woman, Ruth is, whom Boaz will go on to describe, chapter 2, verse 12, as having come to take refuge under the wings of the Lord, the God of Israel, which is Old Testament language for trusting God as one's covenant Lord. This is a woman, Ruth, willing to jeopardize her future One that in outliving Naomi will likely leave her alone in old age. And yet for Ruth, there's no looking back. As she continues, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. In a time when where one was buried was believed by many to have connection with one's experience of the afterlife. Bury me in Yahweh's land, Ruth says. Which she follows with an oath, inviting the Lord to strike her dead should she not make good on her promises. In response to which we're told, verse 18, when Naomi saw that she was determined, Ruth was, to go with her, she said no more. In this moment, Naomi doesn't respond to Ruth with a welcoming spirit, nor any sense of gratitude for the companionship and and care that Ruth promises her. Simply silence. Perhaps a simple acknowledgement that there's no changing Ruth's mind, that there was nothing Naomi could say or do to sway Ruth otherwise. Perhaps silence the best she can manage in this moment in thinking to the difficult days ahead with Ruth by her side. I mean, whatever we understand her, her silence to mean, it's clear at this point in the story that Ruth the Moabite has more faith uh, in the God of Israel than Naomi the Bethlehemite. As we'll see next week, and we'll zoom in on this, Naomi is in an incredibly dark place. An incredibly low place, a place of deepest bitterness. And yet, don't miss this, yet she returns to the land of God's presence and promise nonetheless. That there's space in God's story of redemption for a few Naomi's too. That unlike the prodigal, she returns bitter, but like the prodigal, She returns. See, this morning's passage, it's all about returning. As we encounter the Hebrew word translated return roughly a dozen times throughout this morning's passage and on into the remainder of chapter 1. When you see that kind of repetition, it's not to be missed or glanced over. That Hebrew word, it can also be translated turn back or go back or bring back. It's not simply the word for returning in a general sense, but the primary word used in the Old Testament for repentance and conversion. For turning to the Lord for his covenant mercy and grace. 
in essence, Ruth declares, there's nothing left for me in Moab. And in doing so, she invites us to join her in declaring those same words. Can we say that? Can we join Ruth? Can we join Simon Peter? Even now, Lord, to whom shall I go? You have the words of eternal life, and I have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Give me Jesus and a thousand storms over the calm waters of circumstance absent of Christ. If Christ is in front of me, I don't want what's behind me. I don't care what it is. The story of Scripture, as I mentioned earlier, the story of Ruth is zooms in. It's a part of a bigger story of redemption. The story of the Bible is the story of sinners going away from God and of God's great plan of redemption in Jesus Christ to bring sinners back home. That whatever it means for each of us, the invitation this morning is to come home. To come home to the God who created you and who loves you and who has made a way for you in Jesus Christ. To come back bitter if you must. To come back with the most meager of expectations if you must. But to come back nonetheless trusting that the God of Ruth The God of the Bible is a God who brings redemption out of the ashes of ruins. That's his MO. That's what he does. A God who invites us to pour our hearts out to him in lament, who's big enough to handle it, who has space for that, while trusting that he works all things for good for those who love him. Down to the deepest suffering and most tragic loss. This is not to diminish what Naomi went through. We'll see in the continuation in the weeks to come of this incredible story that God works those darkest nights of the soul into beautiful, redemptive weavings into this tapestry. It's through Ruth's personal story of redemption that others will know redemption, including Naomi and her bitterness, Israel and the promised Davidic king, and lost sinners like you and me in Jesus. And so the question, I think, for us this morning is, which of these characters do we find most relatable right now? Probably relate to any one of them in any given season of life, but where do you find yourself even now? Perhaps it's with Orpah, drawn to the functional saviors of security and safety, the foreign gods that present themselves in our day and age. Perhaps it's Ruth. Perhaps you're on fire for the Lord, if we can use that phrase, sitting on the mountaintop, champagne and confetti in your relationship with God right now. Maybe the hard thing for you is to be surrounded by bitterness among others in the church and to keep going alongside them like Ruth does with Naomi all the way to Bethlehem. Maybe for some of us, We find Naomi to be most relatable, having suffered great loss recently in life, tragedy even. Be encouraged that God receives people who come back home even in their bitterness, if they'll simply but turn to him. I don't know what the Lord has for us this morning. I want to give some space, a couple minutes now, to respond to our time in the scriptures Band's going to come back up. 
music, no lyrics, just a couple minutes. And I, I just encourage you to, if, if the Spirit of God hasn't already revealed it, to say, Lord, what is the so what for me in light of our time in the Scriptures this morning? What do you have for me? What do you want from me? Whatever it is, it's a move in the direction of God. And we'll give space for us to sing to this God. And as we've talked about in recent weeks, there's room for honesty there. Like Naomi to say, Lord, it's hard for me to sing as I'm tasting my tears as I stare at the lyrics on this screen. Maybe to simply sit and listen to the voices of others who make up the church. And to let their words lift up your arms in a place where you're low. Nonetheless, he's worthy of our worship, this God. He is sovereign and he's good, by the way. We have an opportunity to receive the Lord's Supper over the course of these last couple songs. If you're not a Christian, I'd encourage you not to partake of the bread and the cup. But that your next step would be one of repentance and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. After which, run to the bread and the cup. If you're a Christian, you know this, many of you, that we take the bread representing the broken body of Jesus. We dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. Again, as we sit with this story of Ruth, be reminded, be encouraged to know where this story's headed. You can go read at the end of chapter 4. It's headed to King Jesus. We know that already. We sit on the other side of the cross in empty tomb. We're not giving away anything. We know, many of us. The question is, will we celebrate it this morning? As you receive of the bread and the cup, taste the sweetness of redemption of a God who receives us back home and who does so in Jesus. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources, and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E ptc.com